get perspective in yeah. whichever way you wanna you wanna do it. Do your internships, do your overseas lab visits, <laughs> take take a career break. <laughs> just just do anything that's not this endless tunnel vision of the hustle, bustle, and grind of just getting research results and publications out. Get yeah. perspective, whatever that may mean for you. Hey folks, and welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for grad students and academics who want to take their graduate degree out of the ivory tower and into industry. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with my friend Merle, who lives in Australia. She got her PhD in behavioral science and then broke into the finance sector. And today I talk with her about how she made the transition from academia to industry, how she specifically broke into finance and her work consulting there. And then also we discuss her book, The Ultimate Guide to Doing a PhD. We cover a lot of things. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. When in your PhD program did you realize that you were going to go to industry? <laughs> so there's, I think that for most people, there's going to be a couple turning points where I think first you have to admit to yourself that there is a problem. <laughs> and step, step, step one is stop your denial. Um, I think the second step is then figuring out what the problem is. Uh, and then I think from there on, as, as, long, as soon as you realize that it might be that you're just not a great fit for academia or academia is not a great fit for you, however you want to phrase that, um, then I think the realization can start to seep in that academia just isn't for you. Industry might be for you because not everyone goes into industry either, right? Obviously, depending on your definition of industry, but I know loads of people who go into policy, governance, nonprofits. I mean, in my sector, so I'm a behavioral scientist. In my sector, this is very, very common to, to do as well. So I don't want to discredit that. But I I don't have a, a strong viewpoint or strong vision on, on policy and regulation. So I guess for me, the alternative always would have been industry. But the irony is that throughout the PhD and being in academia, I had to completely revisit what my concept of industry was and what the kind of jobs in industry were that would hire someone with a PhD that made a lot of sense for a behavioral scientists to be in uh, that weren't with, you know, any of the big 10 consulting firms. Because at the ripe age of 20, deluded and ignorant, uh, that was what I thought industry was. Yeah. <laughs> Just the entire consultancy sector, which, uh, as I said, you know, this, this is not how you should go about it. You should do your research. You should talk to more people. You should actually understand what's going on in the world uh, and not panic at the age of 20 and then make life-changing decisions. But here we are. <laughs> yeah. And frankly, I, you know, I did a very similar thing. I, you know, decided I want to change the world. I applied to one mm -hmm. master's program, became a therapist, mm -hmm. also had professors that said, you'd be good at research. You should think about mm -hmm. doing a PhD. You have a mind for academia. And mm -hmm. uh, just was like, yeah, sure. Sign me up for whatever's next. <laughs> and uh, I, I think many people actually yes. end up in graduate programs in that same kind of way where we don't super concretely know what's like mm -hmm. five or ten years down the road. We just know we like learning, we like our subject, we like the yeah. environment that we're in, and uh, we just want to go further with it. And uh, yeah. Or you simply don't know anything else. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't think... I'm <laughs> 
So this is the thing. My my main recommendation, and I think I'm just hijacking the order of your podcast, but my main recommendation is actually, and I, I've actually had a lot of pushback on this, and which is perfectly acceptable, obviously. But through my own experience, I think it makes a lot more sense if you go into a PhD having had industry or corporate or non-academic experience i don't care when you've got it i don't care how you've got it i don't even care if you've got it in a subject that you're still in Mm. but i think it just puts a lot more things into perspective that and that is a kind of perspective that you do not have when your entire journey has been academic like mine was um i just i just don't recommend like being entirely academic when being like okay yeah i'm gonna continue in academia and hope this works out for me you don't have a counterfactual. You don't have any other experience to compare it to. Um, and th- that can also make you feel really, really trapped because you don't know the alternative. It's yeah. very unfortunate. Yeah. I'm sorry you had a similar experience, though. I find it really funny, where, <laughs> especially because someone told you you have an academic mind. I still don't know what that means. Still either. not a clue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. So we both find ourselves here in industry jobs, what kind of a role did you end up stepping into when you went industry? Right, so highly ironically, after the rant I just gave, I think the role is best described as essentially being an internal consultant. I know uh, the irony is not lost on me either, Um, but it's it's essentially, you can call it an internal consultant, but really I'm just a researcher. The business comes to me with very specific problems, things aren't working from an internal perspective, a customer-facing perspective, sometimes even a regulatory perspective as, as new regulations come in. And we do actually have to, obviously, we have to abide by them uh, in a way that obviously is also beneficial for our customers and for us. You do have to look for win-win-win situations. They're very scarce, but we try our best. Um, and, then, and then they come to us and, and they just ask us, how do you actually do this? And if there's things that we know very little about, uh, especially with extremely new regulations, we, we take the testing. Uh, some of that is field work, some of that is lab work. We actually do still build a lot of experiments, um, like online type experiments. Mm. As I said, I'm a behavioral scientist, so it's a, it's a good mix of economics and, and psychology. So lab experiments galore. And uh, yeah, and we, we disseminate what comes out of that, what recommendations to take from that, how to implement that. And then uh, when we move to implementation, we continue testing. So it's still very research heavy. There's just no publication journey at the end, realistically. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how did you end up getting that role? Um, so that's so as I said, I finished my PhD during the during the pandemic and the last project in my PhD, which didn't end up in my PhD to begin with, which is a bit you know interesting, um, was that I had data from this financial institution that I currently work at uh, because they very specifically Australia is very ahead of payments. I need to give a bit of context, otherwise it's going to make no sense. So Australia had a lot of the payment technologies already enabled. Um, so I think they were one of the first in the world to actually properly do Google Pay, Android Pay, Apple Pay, the, the whole rigmarole. But that wasn't a countrywide decision to make. That was actually a financial institution uh, choice to make. So the financial institution I currently work for was very late to the game with actively switching on Apple Pay. This has a variety of reasons. Let's not get into them now. Uh, but they switched this on. And then when they switched it on, I started getting the data so I could see how people spent their money before having Apple Pay activated and after. Because there's a large literature saying that, there, that this is going to make a difference. And it does. Um, 
So I, I had this data, I, I was going through the motions of, of, you know, disentangling this effect. And then essentially my, my PhD was running its course. My friend who was still working in this institution at the time was like, hey, uh, I, as a result of the pandemic, she, she was based or she grew up in, in New York herself. She was like, listen, I'm moving back home. Um, I know roles are going to be available, but her, her role included. Uh, we're going to be hiring for, for multiple roles. I know you want to leave academia. I think you should apply. And I told her because she was in a managerial function, she was leading a team. I was like, listen, I don't, I don't have any experience leading a team. She's like, it doesn't matter. Just apply to the role. Uh, and even if you fail, at least the, the team knows you by this stage. They have a better idea of who you are and they, and they know that you actively want to move. Um, so I did exactly as, as she told me. She is actually filled with a with a lot of wisdom. I can't imagine her ever doing a PhD. I think she might be too smart for that. Mm. <laughs> so uh, so I applied to the to the job, and um, as this did, that team already knew me. I think it was a relatively uh, easy interview process. To be very honest, I mean you're sitting opposite people who are asking you questions about behavioral science, and they know that you know the answer. So it was it was a very it, it seemed more like a bunch of friendly, very informal chats about behavioral science where you had to give a presentation or you had to design an intervention or whatever. But it was very friendly. It was very, uh, yeah, cozy almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in, in the end, I mean, um, as, as predicted by myself, I didn't get the, the managerial job because I at the time didn't have any managerial experience, but they were like, listen, uh, we want to hire you anyway, just you're not going to manage a team, you'll just manage projects and do research. I'm like, excellent, sounds good to me. And then as soon as Australia opened up after the pandemic, I uh, skedaddled off to Sydney. So that is uh, from January last year. Yeah. So there you go. Easy does it. That's so that that's my journey in. So I recommend for anyone who's doing a PhD, try to get data from industry and then uh, just slowly, slowly wiggle your way in. <laughs> yeah, and this is not the first story that I've heard where someone mm-hmm. got a great industry job by having a relationship with that employer yeah. while they were a grad student, whether that was a data collection project or someone did their dissertation with the data, another person, a lot mm-hmm. of people have done internships during their yeah. Their graduate programs, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that speaks to if you have that like long term view of yeah. you know, maybe academia won't work out, I'm gonna maybe end up in the industry, might as well start like sowing some seeds for the future. For folks listening who have the time before they go on the market, I think that's a great, you know, great takeaway to, yeah, to think about. Hey folks, I wanted to interrupt my conversation with Merle briefly just to let you know that if you're interested in taking your PhD to industry, you need a roadmap. And I've created a roadmap, a one-page PDF that outlines all of the steps and specific tasks that I think PhDs need to do in order to be competitive on the job market. And if you'd like to download that free PDF, you can go to sixweekchecklist.com or click the link in the description of this episode. Now, back to the interview. Can you speak a little bit about what you think the opportunities are in the financial sector for PhDs, maybe just from the social sciences or more broadly? Mm. I find it very difficult to approach the the financial sector as 
a whole entity. I think for the average PhD, uh, sorry, grad school students or someone who's about to to hit the job market or someone who's still got a couple of years uh, to to get there, it kind of depends on what your niche is. I struggle to see where someone would take a lot of advantage out of having a PhD in finance unless they had a PhD in like financial modeling. Because that is what that the financial sector as an industry is looking for that because this is right. so data heavy, obviously machine learning, AI, these applications are going to become increasingly more popular uh, and already have become rapidly popular. And they need people who actually know what on earth is going on there. Do you need a PhD in that or do you need a lot of uh, rigorous training through like master programs, online courses and having a very active GitHub or Kaggle? <laughs> I feel like some people know exactly how to how to work this domain, but realistically, your skill set needs to be very visible online. You need to be easy to find. Your projects, your your ability with with coding, machine learning, you know, whatever, needs to be visible online. A PhD is maybe a way of doing that, but I'm not sure it would be the way. But if if you're looking to enter the financial sector please have a very, very, very strong quant skill background if you want to do it through a PhD. My specialization is behavioral science or behavioral finance, if you will. That is very niche if you compare it to quant, like financial modeling. Again, in that case, I'm very, very niche. Um, My topic or my subfield, if you will, is very PhD heavy because you need quite a rigorous set of research skills to be able to operate in this field because you'll have to do field research you have to do experimental stuff both in real life and uh, so in the in the lab online in real life doesn't matter you need to be able to do all of them you need to be able to create and build quite a variety of methodologies so you you can do a phd as long as that phd very clearly showcases that it can make you more competitive but you need to find units that specialize highly in research to make that work for you not every unit is going to be super open-minded to that Um, so you need to do quite a lot of research beforehand i think if you're looking to do a phd in in finance in behavioral finance quant finance whatever you want to call it and you don't have a very strong academic end goal I'd, cons- I'd reconsider what it is that you really want from it. If you're using it as an opportunity to continuously be exposed to people who can continue to train you in that, courses uh, in that the development from an academic side, that, that's completely valid. Um, I'm not sure it's the way I would necessarily go. I don't regret doing my PhD. I don't think I would have gotten hired without it, but, but that is because my PhD was very practical and focused. Right. So that's another recommendation then. So focus something on which is currently really going in in the field. So something very innovative, I suppose. Yeah. So I want to change gears for a second. So you Hmm. wrote a book. I did. Is it (laughs) the ultimate guide to doing a PhD? It is, yeah. It is, yeah. Grad school is very American. PhD is very European. I'm I'm giving my heritage away in the title already. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. So what was the uh, uh, incentive or what uh, inspired you to write the book? So 
I have to I have to take that a couple steps back as well. So I started blogging. I I know I'm such a boomer. It is what it is. Um, I think as soon as the first year of my PhD ended, or I wasn't in the summer of of my first year moving to my second year of the PhD, and I started blogging because I was actually really disappointed with how little you wrote in the PhD and I really really like to write. A PhD as I'm sure many people are aware is you write one thing it gets critiqued to shreds and then it's just editing and editing it's mind-numbing. I don't like editing but I love writing. So I was really disappointed with that and the other thing and this is a critique that academia has had to withstand for the past 50 years and it's really not going well um, is just this very ivory tower like interesting results or or applies results or any kind of results they don't trickle down they're hidden behind paywalls and journals and they, they are not accessible by any means to anyone who could actually benefit from them. So I got a bit annoyed, so I started blogging about anything I found in my research, anything I found in behavioral economics, behavioral science, behavioral finance, insert some kind of behavioral here. And, you know, I really, really enjoyed that. And then I started thinking, because most of my, my friends and family who weren't doing a PhD, but were actually really quite struggling to understand what it was. So I wrote about that. Uh, I wrote about my experiences from applying to supervisor selection to mental health struggles and, and there were many i'm afraid mm. and they were very very popular like all the stuff on behavioral finance i wrote is also very popular so i'm very thankful for for a great audience but these articles on the struggles in the phd they were they got taken up by a very different audience and they just kept spiraling into more and more people reaching out to me to the extent where I probably had a chat about someone asking me, should I be doing a PhD in behavioral science? How do I go about this? Do you think it makes sense? Like, does this fit in my five-year plan? So all of a sudden, I'm like twice or three times a week having calls with people from anywhere in the world asking me about what, about, about career and, and like, you know, life trajectory advice, which I'm not entirely sure I was equipped to give. <laughs> Massive disclaimer in front of all of these chats. But the thing is, is this is this is not scalable. Um, I still had these chats when I moved to Australia, and the time difference got so absurd that I think I had one of these chats at like two a.m. Like I, I have to respect the person; they were really tenacious. They really wanted to talk to me, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm a night person. Let's do it. Don't don't be surprised if I'm like sitting there with a glass of wine, but I will answer your questions <laughs> at two a.m. Um, I think I'd actually gone home from a party uh, as well just to take that call. So, it was, yeah, it was very interesting. Um, she's doing very well, by the way. So I'm, I'm very That's glad. Great. I'm not sure it's because of my advice, but she, she is doing very well. Yeah. So this it just became unsustainable. It's not scalable. It doesn't yeah. work. But So I'd already written, I'm inclined to say, 20, 20 25 posts about it. So really not that much in the grand scheme of things. But I realized that I'd very much written about what was relevant to me at the time. It wasn't super cohesive. And I was like, you know what? Between the between me submitting the PhD dissertation and moving on to the next job, there was a couple months. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to synthesize the whole lot, merge it together, see if I can actually write this up as a proper journey, as a proper almost step-by-step guide. Uh, and so I did. And then I got it published with... Uh, I'm not even sure where the publisher is from, to be honest. But it got published. Uh, and I hope it's it's useful to people. I hope they can make much more sense of a PhD 
than I did because I generally felt like I was free falling from one stage into the next. And I, I think realistically in my third year, I'm not entirely sure if I made any progress or I did more of a regression. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't want that for other people. I think, as you've already mentioned, there's loads of people who during the PhD get their epiphany moment and they do an industry internship or they do an overseas visit, they get experience with way more labs or other institutions, other people, other PIs, um, or they work with data from uh, from corporate, from industry, maybe even from, from government, although it's, that tends to be a bit more sensitive. And they get just this plethora of experiences and they get perspective and that is so important. But I think mm. at the time, me as an early 20s, like, I had no idea what I was doing. Just yeah. none. And I was just, you know, and, and the PhD is, is very tunnel vision. It's very focused. And because of the tunnel vision and because of the panic and because of this perpetual feeling of not knowing what you're supposed to be doing, and as a result, consistently feeling like a failure, um, there's not a lot of mental capacity left to take a couple breaths, take a couple steps back and get that perspective and be like, you know what, maybe this isn't healthy. Maybe this isn't what I want to do with my life. And maybe it's time to, as a colleague of mine did, take six months off and uh, have an internship with the World Bank or OECD, which in in Europe are are really good uh, applied behavioral economics uh, organizations, or at least these organizations have those units. And uh, yeah, they, they learned a lot from that. Obviously, if the world hadn't shut down thanks to the pandemic, I think I would have done more of that. But, you know, that, that's, that's hindsight. And maybe that's just me lying to myself. But yeah, so I hope this, this guide can tell people that even if you find yourself in the, in the darkest part of your tunnel vision, there, there are ways out. There's definitely ways of dealing with it. You should deal with it. You should deal with it very proactively. And if you go into a PhD knowing all of these things, you can be really quite proactive about it because it doesn't catch you off guard as badly. But uh, yeah, expectation adjustments are uh, are definitely in order. Yeah, absolutely. So, what, where in someone's journey through a PhD do you think this book would make the most impact? Well, it describes all stages. So realistically, probably get it even before you start. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got entire chapters on how to actually successfully apply to a PhD, which seems to be quite a, a struggle as well. So do get it then. But as I said, if you read this book, or at least if you read like the first two or three sections, which is um, before the PhD, very much in the, in the first year, so the, the, the year that you're still being taught things, that you're trying to figure out what, is, what it is that's actually going on, as well as the first part that you actually have to do research. I feel like if you read those before you even start your PhD, in the process that you're applying, at, at the time that you're actively considering, hey, is this for me? I think that will already help you massively, because that's how I wrote it. I feel like the idea of a PhD to a lot of people is this this vague abstract blob in the same way that consulting was a vague abstract blob (laughs) to me when I started uh, getting into the recruitment uh, stages of it. And it didn't meet my expectations and as a result I hated it. And I just don't want that to happen to people where they're like, because actually I've I've read recently and it's, it's very disappointing that there's a very high percentage of people that drop out in the first year of the PhD because it is still so taught. And they were hoping to do independent research and to, you know, accelerate. And this, this, the, and, and in the States, it might even be longer than, than one year of teaching. It might actually be close to two or three, obviously, depending on the field that you're in. 
and it's, it's just such a disappointment because if, if you have that expectation that just doesn't align you might be missing out on something great or maybe you saved yourself from a lot of headaches it's difficult to say really <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so if people want to pick up the book where do you suggest they go to buy it um i'm pretty sure it's on amazon i mean yeah. i'm not i'm not saying that i'm the biggest fan of jeffrey bezos but you know by this stage it is easy <laughs> let's let's just make life easy for ourselves which is how he became a billionaire after all right it's not a bad yeah. strategy <laughs> yeah what do you what do you foresee in the future for someone who's who's getting into let's say they're in your field they're focused more on the mm. finance sector what are the 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 career paths that they can kind of look out and see into the future what are some possibilities Fair play. I think consultancy in our sector is not likely to die out. Um, I think the units within companies, like internal type consultancies, they'll continue growing. But that is a kind of like a who knows who kind of game. Mm. Um, Especially as (laughs) what I've recently noticed is that people kind of jump between the financial institutions that they're in. And you tend to, once you're in that pool, great. And you can kind of keep circling it in that pool, hopefully circle upwards, you know. Um, the other thing which even these consultancies and other kinds of companies will, will have to start hiring is people with specializations in behavioral data science and behavioral AI. I'm not saying that if you don't have any quant skills, you're completely unemployable. If, if you cap out at analytics, that is completely fine. If you prefer to you know, be on the consultancy side, be on the, the research design, the methodology side, that is completely valid and like you're still going to get hired. It's just if you want to be in the area that has the most rapid growth um, and that's still very much in in infancy so you can make the most impact the quickest, I'd probably move towards behavioral data science and behavioral AI. So you you have a strong, strong background in quant skills that even if all of behavioral science completely collapses, you still have a very, very strong skill set that you just take to the next sector. So you're very employable. (laughs) And I personally find behavioral AI very interesting. Uh, Don't have the skill set yet, but I'll be working on it. (laughs) Absolutely. So for folks who want to follow along with your journey and consume some more of your content, where do you suggest they look to follow you? Um, I think the easiest way to follow me is actually on LinkedIn. Like I okay. used to be Twitter, but quite frankly, it's, yeah, I mean, we all know what happened to Twitter uh, or X or whatever it's currently called. I mean, it's my X favorite app, so I, I presume it was very aptly named. Um, and then the, the blog is just called uh, Money on the Mind. So you can you can find me and my, my ramblings about behavioral finance and uh, academia now uh, on there as well. Yeah, I, I've got the blog pulled up. Who who does your blog, what kind of readership does your blog mm. target? Well, it's surprisingly a lot of Americans, which as a European, I always find very funny. It's like, oh, it found its way to the States. So there we go. Um, so I, as I mentioned, I did the blog because I want to break down like really academic, really complicated concepts so anyone can apply them and anyone can understand what's going on. So I don't think I'm being read by the most academic of people because I'm sure they just read the journals. But I think I have an audience ranging from behavioral enthusiasts to people with like years and and decades of experience in the the behavioral domain Um, and just seeing what's going on in the the behavioral finance domain. So it's, it's a very varied readership. I think the... 
the limits on or the the spread or the, the variance on, on terms of, of levels of education, age, where they are from in, in the world is actually really quite varied. So I'm actually really pleased with that. I'm, I'm, I'm getting yeah. a very varied and broad audience, which makes me happy. That's it's awesome. good for the field. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I'll have links to your book, your LinkedIn and the blog in the description of this episode. So if folks are listening, they can scroll down on YouTube or on the podcast and get links to those three things. Uh, Meryl, <laughs> it, did we cover everything that you wanted to talk about today? I'm Is curious to hear in? from mm, from my end. No, but I'm very curious because you've interviewed so many people. I'm then very curious to learn what is your number one piece of advice for someone who's already in grad school to make the most of it? Hmm. I think the... So I, I think now where I am in life is I'm I'm stuck in the what do you do after grad school? And so mm -hmm. that's that's what I think about. And I think the most impactful thing you can do is to network. And, sure. you know, if you want to stay in academia, of course, you can network in academia. But I think if even there's like a 30% chance or a 50% chance that you're going to go to industry, I think you start start making those connections early. Because the worst thing you can do is to need a job in six weeks. And that's yep. when you start networking. And that just doesn't work. You need a you need to network six to 12 months before you're going to start asking sure. people for things. And uh, so I, I think thing, that's the thing that I impress on people the most when I meet with them right now. So how do you go about networking? Because I've gone about a variety of ways. I, and the blog is actually uh, has always been a core part of that because it makes me very easy to find. Um, I also drop everything I've ever done on SSRN, which actually gets you quite a lot of media attention, assuming that your topic is remotely interesting. But then, so I'm just, I push out content and then people come to me. I'm not even sure if that's just networking or just screaming into the void and sometimes the void screams back. Um, so what, what is, what are your tips for networking then? Come on, yeah, teach yeah. me. I clearly still need help. <laughs> well, so I'll, I'll divide maybe networking into two topics. One is mm -hmm. like, when you don't know anything about industry and you want to network for a future job, I think the easiest thing to do is reach out to upperclassmen who've already gone into industry, maybe people mm -hmm. who were in their fifth year when you were in your first year. And they're the for easiest sure. people to get who will say yes to speaking with you. Of course. And I think once you, once you get them, the easiest question at the end is, do you know two or three other people who you think I should talk to? Mm -hmm. And then it just grows from there. And really, if you do that a couple times, you'll have more than enough spiderweb connections kind of <laughs> shooting out. Uh, so I think I think that's probably where I would start. I think if you don't even have that, you know, Googling, not Googling, getting on LinkedIn and searching PhD in, for me, it's human development and family science, and just see who pops up, scroll through profiles. And, you know, for, for folks like you, the way I network with them is I have them on the podcast and you know we share like <laughs> conversations as content creators and i think that's that's like kind of another i don't know a different kind of networking that most people probably won't do and they probably don't need to do but i think being active on frankly linkedin mm. is the place where everybody hangs out so i think being active on that even just in people's the comments of people's posts True. that's gotten me connections to cool people so I frankly find that 
PhDs are really willing to to chat um, more so than non PhDs because we get the journey, you know, we get what you're having to go through. That is very fair. I mean, I feel like in that regard, I've gotten a bit behavioral science is a very, I want to say open field, but I don't think open is the right word for it. I think it might actually be like a very clicky feel, but that that's, Mm. that's, doesn't sound good at all but it's, it's like in in behavioral science you're never more than two degrees removed from anyone it's not possible uh, because the the field i mean t- 20 years ago this field was like niche like niche niche <laughs> so like it's 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 growing and it's, and it's growing greatly but like like anyone in your direct circle will have a tie to like a major behavioral scientist. Yeah. So it's that makes it very, very easy. This this field isn't very difficult to to network in or to get to know like major players in. I feel like if you approach this from like all of finance, for example, that's that's much more difficult. So much more difficult. Sure. So yeah. Yeah. So, sometimes I guess you get lucky with a very niche field. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I think so too. Well, Merle, it's been great talking with you. Uh, for folks listening, check out the book, LinkedIn, check out our blog. I'll have links to all three of those things. <laughs> I have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. For grad students who are listening, mm-hmm. what is one thing you think that grad students should consider doing before they graduate? It can be something fun or it can be something serious. Just one thing to do. get perspective in yeah. whichever way you want to you want to do it do your internships do your overseas lab visits <laughs> take take a career break just just do anything that's not this endless tunnel vision of the hustle bustle and grind of just getting research results and publications out get yeah. perspective whatever that may mean for you yeah absolutely thank you so much for chatting with me merle <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Matt. It's been good. All right, folks, that was my conversation with Merle. I hope you got a lot out of it. Be sure to check the description for links to her book as well as her LinkedIn profile and blog. Thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you all next week.